Good afternoon, everybody. Welcome back after lunch. Um, maybe we can just close the doors over there as well. Thank you. Um, Eagle-eyed among you will notice I'm not Jody Keane. Um, <laughs> my name's um, Tom Hart. I'm a senior research fellow here at ODI. Um, unfortunately, with the rescheduling, Jody couldn't make the revised time. Um, I'm very pleased to have with us um, Andrews Velasco, um, who I'm sure most economists in the room will be uh, familiar with already. So Andrews is now Professor of Public <coughs> Policy and Dean of the School um, of Public Policy at the London School of Economics and Political Science, just up the road here. Um, as many of you will know, he was presidential candidate in Chile in 2013, um, following his role as the Minister of Finance in Chile between 2006 and 2010. So in a conference where the main theme is public finance, we're very glad to have a former Minister of Finance with Great us. Great subject matter. <laughs> Music to my ears. Um, since 2021, he's been a member of the External Advisory Group to the Managing Director of the IMF and the High Level Advisory Group to the IMF and World Bank. Um, going back to the finance theme, um, during his time as Finance Minister in Chile, um, he was well recognised as being pivotal to ensuring that the copper windfalls, the copper revenues, at that time was used for a rainy day fund, which then enabled a um, large fiscal response um, in, in uh, following the global financial crisis. Um, but of course, in addition to this kind of distinguished practitioner record, Andres has published in top academic journals and held positions at Columbia and Harvard, amongst others. So welcome, Andres. Thank you very much. Today, uh, this afternoon, we're here to discuss um, growth strategies in in face of a crisis. Um, and of course, growth structure is always changing, um, but it's fair to say I think there are now unprecedented pressures. Um, yesterday, we talked about how slow growth is exacerbating some of the fiscal constraints that many um, low and middle income countries are facing. And we've seen a series of back to back crises from COVID 19, um, Ukraine's invasion of Russia, sorry, Russia's invasion of Ukraine, and so on. <laughs> hope I didn't just cause a diplomatic incident. <laughs> and of course, the climate emergency. President Lula said that, um, much to my dismay, and I imagine everyone's, he thought Ukraine invaded Russia. I wondered what he's been drinking, I don't know. Um, and of course, we have the climate emergency with the physical effects becoming more visible everywhere. Um, and as well as the physical effects, there's the transmitted effects and policy spillovers. These are, of course, as these new policies come in, these are less well understood, but we're beginning to see effects um, from policies like the EU Green New Deal and the US Inflation Redu Reduction Act. These new policy developments and the revival of industrial policy um, in these advanced economies uh, influencing global demand and prices, but also opening up new trade opportunities for some countries and also potentially closing them off with bars to market entry through increased costs of compliance um, for, for uh, green exports and so on. And they come at a time when a debt crisis is affecting many countries, which poses constraints on the ability to respond to new market opportunities and limits the fiscal space to adapt. So we're gonna be discussing this session, the implications for policymakers, ministers of finance operating within that global context. And I'm going to pose a series of questions to Andres, 
and um, we will we'll aim to do that for about 45 minutes or so, and then we'll open up to questions from the audience and, of course, from our online audience as well. Um, so let's dive in, Andreas. Many of us here will be familiar with your pioneering work on growth diagnostics that you did with your colleagues at Harvard. How do growth strategies need to adapt to the climate crisis? Thank you and good afternoon, everyone. Um, my apologies for getting the date and the time of this event wrong. Uh, I will take full responsibility for that. Um, and I'm delighted that it could be rescheduled and that we can all spend uh, this time together. Um, scheduling has never been my forte, um, not even when I was in government. So growth, growth diagnostics and climate change. You post it in a way that, of course, I like because it uh, I find the growth diagnostics approach a good way to thinking about what makes growth possible or holds growth back. If you haven't read the paper, don't because I can summarize it in two sentences. One problem with growth debates is that we love single cause explanations. So one cause becomes fashionable, and then every country in Asia and Africa and Latin America, you know, must tackle that problem. Of course, that's nonsense because different countries have different problems. And growth diagnostics is nothing more than an effort to make that into a more systematic approach for thinking what ails this country, what constrains growth in that country, and what constrains growth in India may well be different from what constrains growth in Brazil or in South Africa or pick your favorite country. Now you bring in what may be an additional constraint, which is climate. Um, and therefore the boring technocratic answer that I'm going to give you first, it will not be the only one, is that this becomes yet one more constraint and it may be binding and very serious and very urgent in some countries. It may be less binding and less serious and less urgent in other countries. Clearly, if you're an island state, it is going to be very, very binding. If you're a landlocked country in a temperate zone, it'll probably be less binding. And therefore, I would like to think that we can employ this way of thinking about growth, which is by now oh my god 20 years old it seems like yesterday uh, um, to think about this methodically and i think it is important to do this because climate is very 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 important and the threat is major but because it is major we have to treat it seriously and i sometimes worry that the one size fits all approach developing economics has also been transferred to climate and i think that's not right a friend of mine who shall remain nameless was recently asked to be the reviewer of the world bank strategy document for one african country that should also remain nameless and my friend pointed out to me that uh, this is a country with tremendous mining potential and which potentially could be producing some of the minerals that will be key in the green transition. Well, the World Bank strategy document contains 17 mentions to the need for this country to reduce emissions. This country is probably accounts for, I don't know, but you know, not point, not, 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 not 1% of world emissions and contain one passing emission, I'm sorry, one, 
passing mention to the potential for this country to be a supplier of those things that the world needs to do a green transition. Okay. Now that is true of this country, it may not be true of other country where you know the potential for cheap energy or for you know green minerals is not there. So if I take the approach that that Roderick Hausmann and I put together a long time ago and take it here, I would suggest that we need to be a lot more careful in thinking of what it is that institutions like the World Bank or finance ministries for that matter conclude when it comes to what a given country needs to do to achieve two goals. One is to keep growing or to reignite growth, because let's be honest, most of us are not growing very much. And secondly, to make a contribution to the worldwide green transition, right? The green transition is different from other problems because it is global. What matters is overall emissions. And it could well be that a country's most valuable contribution to the overall green transition involves increasing emissions because you're going to have more mining. And, you know, the sort of knee jerk reaction that all natural resource extraction and all mining is bad because it is extractivist. I get it from some of my colleagues across the river. I get it from some of my students across the river is, of course, nonsense. It is nonsense because without more mining of certain kinds, and of course done properly without, with, with all the safeguards, we're not going to have the things we need for the green transition. And I'll say one last thing. Um, it will be key in the next two or three decades who can produce clean, affordable energy. The good news is that many developing countries live, you know, happen to be located in places that are sunny and windy. Uh, and therefore, we could become producers uh, of cheap, clean energy. And there's a big question out there of what the technology will end up being like for the transport and export of such energy. And I think one can envision two scenarios that are very, very difficult, very different, sorry. They're also difficult, but different, uh, depending on what this technology turns out to be like. And I'm not an energy engineer, so I talk to energy engineers and I hear two stories. One story goes like this. We're at the verge of having the technology that will make green hydrogen exportable at reasonable price with reasonable cost and reasonable safety. So if you're from Chile, which I happen to be, which in the north is the sunniest place on earth, get ready to produce a lot of solar energy, pack it in, make it into green hydrogen and allow Germany to get rid of its dependency on uh, the evil empire of Mr. Putin. Um, but that, of course, works if and only if the technology is good enough. A second story, which I also hear from people who know a lot more than I do about this, is that technology will work, but has lots of limitations, it's going to be too expensive, it's going to be too dangerous. So what will happen in reverse is that because cheap energy will be not fully exportable, some companies will have an incentive to relocate near sources of big energy and cheap energy and clean energy. And if this is so, this is earth shaking, right? Sorry if I provide another example from my country, but you know, the north of Chile is in fact Chile's poorest region. Um, if in fact you had big companies producing, you know, the kinds of things that the world needs, taking advantage of the fact that you can have extraordinarily cheap and very, very clean solar energy, that's a complete game changer. And it's a complete game changer for Peru, which is a much lower income country than, than Chile, and it's a game changer for Bolivia, which is much lower income than Peru or Chile. Will this be the case? I do not know, and I think it's really a technological question, not an economic one. 
But thinking in those terms, I think, you know, is, I find it much more helpful than simply telling country X, reduce emissions because the world is burning up. The world is burning up, but we need to be much cleverer about it. Thank you. And I mean, if that, if that deals with what you might call the kind of climate mitigation side of the debate, you know, we've got we've got many countries which are going to be hit extremely hard by the effects of climate change, which, you know, we are, we're already seeing, which we already know are baked in. How should growth strategies respond to a changed climate and the fact that, that growth has to take place in a, in a climate which is yeah. not the same as it has been in the past? I suppose one very partial and very boring and very bureaucratic answer I gave already, it becomes one more constraint, which may be the binding constraint, and therefore we need to, in the language of engineering, operate on that constraint, loosen it up. And here there's a role for international institutions and there's a role for domestic policy. Maybe you will ask me this later, but I'll put it on the table right now. What the world community is doing to mobilize resources to emerging and developing countries for this transition is shameful. It is insufficient, it is slow, it involves committees that issue reports that go to commissions that issue another report that goes back to the committee. And I will plead guilty because I've sat on most of those committees and commissions uh, uh, and I have written reports that, you know, I could not even get my 93 year old mother to read. Uh, um, and um, the way I always put it in these groups is if I happen to be a finance minister from a developing country and we have some in the room, uh, where do I go? What are the three mechanisms? You know, what do I need to do to get money flowing? Truth is. Well, we are conducting a study which will then will take to the board, which will then will go to the capitals. There are no two or three or four mechanisms today that will move resources for green investment anywhere near the order of magnitude that we need. Um, and some of those may be grants, some of them may be loans, some of them, of them may be partial guarantees for de-risking. Um, it is true that some countries who are middle, that are middle income still have substantial market access, but they have market access for things that are much shorter horizon and much less risky. You know, if, if a middle income country today wants to borrow to build a shopping mall, they'll give you the money. But if you want to borrow in the international capital market for a long term investment whose return is, you know, quite hard to predict, it's not clear they will lend you the money. So this is where financial engineering has a role to play. You know, you can dice and slice and take first tranches and second tranches and mitigate and whatever. And again, everybody's aware of this. You know, you go to Washington and this is not news, but in the end, very little has happened. So that will be the first part of my answer. The second part of my answer, uh, which has to do with domestic policy is, um, most developing countries, with a few exceptions like India, are not big enough to grow on their own, meaning they have to grow by selling things that the rest of the world wants to buy. Unless you happen to have a gigantic domestic market, you know, not even a country like Brazil can grow inward. I mean, Brazil has been trying that for 30 years and, you know, uh, Houston, we have a problem. It hasn't worked. Um, so the question is, what are the things that developing countries can produce that the world would like to buy under the new circumstances. I don't have a generic question because if I take my own academic work seriously, the answer to that question will be very different depending on what kind of a country you are and how badly exposed you are to climate risk and what 
is that climate risk like? Is it flooding? Is it volatility in temperatures? Is it rainfall? Um, um, so we need to reformulate export-oriented strategies. But, and this is the last thing I'll say, we this does not mean and should not mean that we give up on growth. The growth is the world is growing too little, and the emerging and developing world is growing especially little. And secondly, we should remain cognizant that that growth will happen if and only if we export. So we need an export strategy that is adapted to the constraints posed by climate. I know that's generic, but I think that's not a bad place to start thinking about it. And maybe I'll come on to what what I mentioned at, at the beginning, which is you know we've seen the IMF recently. I think had a chapter in the World Economic Outlook looking at the kind of implications for geopolitics on on the world economy, and and given the kind of the talk of a, a new Washington consensus that maybe is a consensus just in Washington and not much further out, um, but the embrace of industrial policy in the in the the US and Europe in a way that I don't think has been seen for um, you know, some time. What are the implications for trade and investment flows and how, how should the kind of smaller um, and less well-resourced um, countries respond to that? Tim Besley, my colleague at the LSE, are editing a book which will be called the London Consensus. So I hope the next consensus will be here, not across the Atlantic. <laughs> then again, the Washington Consensus, the first time around, was written by an Englishman, John Williamson. So, um, you know, I'm from Chile, I'm not British, but I'm, I'm, I'm pushing for a British consensus on this. Um, let me answer with a small uh, intro to the issue of industrial policy. Given, as you might guess, because one of my you know, regular colleagues is Danny Roderick and the other one is Ricardo Hausman, that I am quite partial towards something, call it industrial policy, call it productive development policy, call it export diversification policy. I don't care what the label is. So my inclination is to take this subject matter seriously. I am slightly worried, however, by, by what I would call the identity politics around the issue. That is to say, for the last 25 years, in many quote-unquote respectable circles, if you liked industrial policy, you're not a serious person because, you know, we serious economists believe that that's, you know, left-wing mumbo-jumbo. That was a complete mistake, and it was silly. I sometimes worry that we're now going to the other uh, end of the spectrum where you know industrial policy is a new flavor of ice cream and unless you say i'm doing industrial policy you're not quite with it um and again what we mean by industrial policy and what the industrial policy looks like going back to my earlier answer is going to be dramatically different um so i don't think industrial policy was as bad as it used to be uh, said and i don't think it is as good as it is sometimes you know hinted at today so at a country level um let's think hard of what this means and there is room for something that in fact looks like a growth strategy uh, uh, and some of this growth strategy will involve what i would call the deliberate solving of government failures and market failures uh, in a way that lifts obstacles to growth. And if you, if you phrase it that way, I think 
it is less objectionable to people of different political colors. I'll give you one example. There are people from finance ministries in the room. Uh, you will be you will be familiar with this. Every year, the finance minister of country X or Y or Z has to discuss the public works budget. And different ministers and different governors and different mayors and different members of parliament come to you saying that bridge in my district is the most important bridge ever. And in most countries, including, uh, you know, this country, that gets settled by mean of a political process that sometimes is pretty to behold and sometimes quite ugly to behold. Whoever bangs the table louder gets the bridge and whoever doesn't, you know, doesn't loud, I mean, bang loudly enough doesn't get the bridge. But there's a choice. You know, we don't build all the bridges that we could potentially build or all the roads or all the ports or all the storage facilities or all the 4G networks. We build some. Now, we could also do that as part of a growth strategy in which we identified which bridges are, in fact, key for additional exports and which training of human capital of a particular kind is linked to a particular good that might be exported to it. So what I'm trying to say is that we are we're always choosing. I've never believed this sort of conservative objection that says, oh, but governments will then get into the business of making these choices they're ill-prepared to make. Ill-prepared or not, governments are making them. Governments are deciding we're building this bridge and not that bridge. Um, and the question is, could we bring into that conversation a more systematic approach to thinking, well, you know, if I am going to be in the business of exporting beef to the European Union, um, Sorry, vegetarians in the room. Um, what I learned, because my country exports mutton and beef and pork to the European Union, is that you will not be able to sell, you know, one bit of that unless you've got, uh, you know, very high tech processing facilities and all kinds of guarantees for for healthy, you know, uh, uh, slaughterhouses and processing and this and that and the other. Who's going to provide that? The government's going to provide that. The government has to certify that, in fact, that slaughterhouse is up to the standards that allows you to sell that bit of mutton in the European Union, right? So, you know, there's a provision of public goods that is absolutely essential, which is part of a development strategy, which governments sometimes do, sometimes don't. Uh, but when they do, often they do it in a completely haphazard or political way. And I think we could do a lot better than that. Now, that's the country perspective. What about the global perspective? How much of a constraint it is on the prospects for developing countries will depend on two things, and I think the jury is still out on both. First of all, you can do industrial policy without necessarily being protectionist. And I think in the case of the US and the EU, there's a bit of both so far. I can say I, we are underproducing solar panels in my country, and I will provide an, you know, a big subsidy for the production of solar panels without necessarily saying I will only subsidize firms that are domiciled you know, in one square mile around my office. Um, so you could have industrial policy without protectionism, or you can have industrial policy with protectionism. And I think it is not clear whether this new fashion will be one kind or the other. If I look at the US, there's a bit of both. There's some protectionism. And of course, if we get Mr. Trump, there'll be more of it. Um, but um, it doesn't have to be that way. The second thing I'd say is, of course, it depends you know, where your country happens to be. You know, For obvious reasons, I talk to Mexican policymakers a lot. And they are very happy campers nowadays. They're saying, oh my god, this looks good, right? Um, um, you know, all that nearshoring and friendshoring is going to come our way. And actually, quite a bit of it is coming uh, their way already. But of course, you know, they're not the only country large to a very, next to a very large market. There are plenty of 
uh, countries probably represented in this room, which happen to be very near other large markets, including the EU, right? So there may be big opportunities there. And let me end by saying that I'm not quite clear, this may be unfair because circumstances may vary across countries, but I am not quite clear that finance ministries and policymakers in emerging and developing countries are thinking in those terms. If I want to be the country that produces that good that formerly the EU imported from China, you know, where do I have to be? You know, what do I have to do? What are the certifications for that bit of mutton uh, that I need to provide so that I can enter that market? Or if I'm going to be part of a value chain for something that is assembled in Germany and a bit of the car is done in Poland, but maybe a bit of the car will be done in Morocco. And I'm saying Morocco because this happens to be on the Mediterranean. What does Morocco need to do to get into the value chain? What are the qualifications, technical, political, environmental, uh, labor rights and everything else that makes Morocco a player in that space? I don't think many countries are actively thinking in those terms. Great. I want to just probe you a bit more on on two connected themes. So, so one is just to to go back to the kind of opportunities of the green transition, and especially for you know mineral producers. What what specifically do you think these commodity exporters who want to kind of get more value added, move up the value chains? Right. What specifically do you think those countries should do? I mean, you know, you, you talked about a variety, but we might think of like Zambia, for instance, being a huge sure. copper producer currently having a debt crisis. There's potentially you know, huge economic opportunities. What would be your advice to uh, on the policy actions that a country like that would need to take? Let me suggest there are three kinds of things. Regarding the old fashioned kind of mineral, copper, I would say priority number one is to use the money adequately. And that's a hat that I wear quite often because that's what I, you know, every white hair I have in my head comes from having tried to do that in Chile when I was a minister for four years. Um, and, uh, you know, I was a student at Yale in the 1980s and my mentor and teacher was a man called Carlos Diaz Alejandro, a great economic historian of Latin America. And he taught me, and he has a beautiful essay on the subject, that um, the, you know, the passage reads like this, the economic history of Latin America is littered with the corpses of commodity booms that ended in disaster. Quite graphical, littered with the corpses. Um, and of course, you know, most commodity booms end in disaster because we mismanage the revenues from that commodity boom. And also because whenever commodity prices are high and people in the room will have experienced this, the country suddenly seems credit worthy. And Goldman Sachs knocks on the door and says, we have a little bond for you. Um, my first job in the Chilean Treasury when I was 29 years old was to be the person who told Goldman Sachs that we didn't want their bond. I was put in that job because I spoke English well. So they thought, oh, put this kid, you know, uh, he can talk to the American bankers. Um, um, but of course, it's very tempting, right? Because when commodity prices are high, you know, all your ratios look beautiful and everybody wants to lend to you. Um, when commodity prices go down, you're, you know, and you really need the money, well, then the ratios don't look so good. Um, and the ways for dealing with this by now, this is old hat, right? You know, one needs to have some kind of a rule, explicit or implicit, for the spending of the money. You need to have some vehicle for saving the surplus in good times, and you have to have some mechanism for using the money um, uh, in bad times. Um, in my years as Minister of Chile, my happiest moment, I still, my, my kids put the picture on the, on, on, on the fridge at home, is um, 
after Lehman Brothers uh, collapsed, you know, Lehman Brothers collapsing was a very sad moment for everybody on the planet except for me, um, because I had been saving all this money and I was about to be fired in Chile because they, they said, oh, this technocrat is saving all this money. And suddenly Lehman Brothers collapsed and, you know, I was sitting on $47 billion in cash and, you know, the saving did not seem so stupid after all. Um, so we, we made the first made the first disbursement. Um, uh, and it had to be done very quickly. So at 9 p.m. on a Sunday night, as my kids were going to bed, uh, someone from the ministry came so that I could sign the decree that the money could be, you know, quite literally dispersed the following morning. So I have a picture of my fridge signing a check for $9 billion. Um, my kids thought, you know, um, daddy should be, you know, uh, photographed doing this. And then never again was I going to write another check for $9 billion US dollars, right? Uh, um, and, you know, and in, 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 in Chile, the, uh, uh, the unemployment rate never uh, went above 9%, and uh, we had two quarters, maybe three quarters of negative growth, and, you know, the economy boom beginning in 2010. Um, and um, so, you know, first order of business, um, think about revenue use in a prudent and long-term way. Um, now, when it comes to the newer minerals, uh, there, 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 there are two issues. Uh, first of all, you want to be able to exploit them, and that seems kind of obvious, right? But this is, you know, harder to, e I mean, easier said than done, because many of the places where the minerals happen to lie are viewed as very high-risk uh, 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 districts or constituencies or nations on the part of investors. So this is where domestic policy and, and international support must come together so that we actually do those kind of de-risking uh, 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 policies that we love to talk about what we seldom do so that countries are in fact deemed um, deemed suitable uh, to receive the kinds of money that are going to need you know and these are these minerals typically sit in places which are not easily accessible so it's a fair bit of cash has to be spent just building the road to get there and of course if we're going to do it in a way that's environmentally sound that means more money etc now, of course, the other side of this, if, if my colleague Nick Stern from the LSE were sitting here, you all know him, he would be saying, well, this is a win-win proposition because this means foreign exchange flows in uh, and um, many jobs are created. So governments should see this as an opportunity from an environmental point of view, but also an opportunity as a growth and um, an employment point of view. The macroeconomist in me, and I'm gonna add a footnote here, would suggest that there's one thing that we do need to worry about when a lot of cash comes from abroad uh, and is spent on non-tradable goods the real exchange rate tends to appreciate very sharply the economists in the room know what i'm talking about which means that the exporters of other goods may not like what is going on when i was the finance minister of chile i knew the routine whenever copper went up the Chilean peso appreciated and I would come at 8 a.m. and try to get into my building and one week it would be the producers of grapes or the next week it would be the producers of wine in Chilean culture I have no idea why the fashion it is that if you want to get the minister's attention you chain yourself to the gates of the ministry <laughs> so I would arrive at 8 a.m. and there would be 50 people chained to my building uh, uh, complaining that the Chilean peso was too strong and that they couldn't make any money by selling grapes or wine or peaches or, 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 or timber. So you need, you know, finance ministers or finance ministry officials in the room, one really has to think hard about the management of the exchange rate. 
And this means spending prudently. It means uh, not spending every last dollar. It means thinking about the supply side as well. Um, if you're going to need more cement, well, you may have to import it, even though it's expensive. If you're going to need more engineers, as I, as I once heard Ricardo Hausmann put it in another country that shall remain nameless, he said to a minister, minister, if you want to build more bridges and you have no more cement and no more engineers, well, if you spend a lot of money, you are going to double the um, price of cement locally. You'll make cement tycoons richer. You're going to double the wages of engineers. You will make engineers richer, but you're going to get the same number of bridges because you have no more cement, no more engineers, right? So that's called real exchange or appreciation. So the question is, how do we, in fact, build more bridges or more green uh, production facilities without destroying the rest of the economy by means of exchange or appreciation? That's, that's a subject that I love, and I'll be happy to go into detail later. But And then third, and I'm going on for too long, forgive me, I'll, I'll, I'll say my third point more quickly. The big, 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 big question is, to what extent do you press and provide incentives and nudge gently and not so gently the foreign producers to do things like take you upstream and you know add value and the academic in me wants to say yes we want to do that uh the policy maker in me wants to say it's really hard um and let me add another consideration even though i'm very much inclined toward that i worry about issues of timing meaning getting the local state company to partner with the foreign company to develop jointly a facility to produce batteries for Tesla could take you eight years. And by eight years, I have no idea what the technology for producing batteries will be. But what I do know is that the risk that the people with the lithium today are facing is that in eight years time, the lithium will not be worth anything because the batteries will be made of something else. So the, the, the trade of here is very nasty. I want to say, yes, try to move up the value chain, try to manufacture, try to get these people to set up some production at home. If it takes eight years, ladies and gentlemen, we may be shooting ourselves in the head because eight years from now, these minerals, these rare earths, these, you know, the lithium or the potassium, whatever, we have no idea what it will be worth. So this may be a case in which maybe speed is of essence. We want to move quickly because maybe, you know, the golden eggs will no longer be around in five or 10 years time. Great. That, that is something I want to pick up on. And this is going to be the last question before I open up to the, the audience. Um, but I wonder if you can talk a bit about from Ministry of Finance. Now, they have their fiscal role. But I mean, typically, they also have a broader role as the lead economic ministry as well. So what, what should the role of the Ministry of Finance be in kind of formulating and executing this kind of growth or industrial strategy? And, and specifically, in terms of getting into these um, new kind of technologies during the green transition, I mean, earlier you said that that is kind of more fundamentally a technological question rather than um, an economic question. What, what do Ministries of Finance need to be doing to keep on top of that to make sure that they're executing um, you know, a growth strategy that, that, that is, you know, making the soundest bets, if you like, on where the science is likely to go, rather than betting on what, what ends up being yesterday's technology. So two questions there. What's their role and how do they, how do they deal with this rapid technological change in their growth strategies? Tom, you have no idea how thankful I am for the way you phrased that question, because what's implicit in your question is a 
premise that I share, and I suspect many people in this room share, is that ministries of finance ought to be powerful, right? Uh, in some quarters, if you say that, you know, you'll be shown the door, right? Because people will think, oh, these technocrats at the Ministry of Finance, what do they know? We need to empower other people. Having been a minister of finance and having worked at a treasury for much of my life, I, I tend to side with, you know, position number one, although I realize that it is not universally popular. Um, what should they be doing? Um, everything. Um, first of all, they should be doing their job. And by that, I mean, one wants to be bold and imaginative, but we also need to be very mindful of macroeconomic constraints. So spending a lot more on these new important things may mean spending less on other things. And everybody in this room who's worked at a Ministry of Finance knows how hard it is, right? Um, uh, as I was having breakfast this morning, I was glancing at the press in Chile. Um, Chile had a pretty good response to COVID. Ministry of Finance employed an extra 200,000 people. The, those people were told that, in fact, the employment was temporary because it was during the pandemic. Um, on September 1st, those contracts came to an end. Guess what? They're all on strike, right? Because, you know, you hired them and how could you possibly fire them now? Um, so, you know, hiring more people during the pandemic was a great thing to do. But the political economy of saying, I'm going to spend more on green uh, growth and therefore I'm going to employ fewer people in, in, in health now that the pandemic is gone makes perfect sense, right? But uh, good luck to the minister or the prime minister or the president who has to make it happen. So my first advice would be, this is a time to be bold, but also a time to be tight fisted, because you need to channel those additional resources to those places where they really have value added. But because resources are not uh, 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 infinite, and because of the old issue of real exchange or appreciation, you really have to be tight in other areas. Secondly, I think ministers of finance have to understand I just, I just said something that was very orthodox. I'm going to say something that is heterodox now, so that, you know, you'll like me. Uh, um, um, I think ministers of finance have to understand that in growth strategy and industrial strategy is also part of the remit. Uh, in some countries, the minister of finance wants to make sure that, you know, the bills are paid and uh, the debt is under control and growth industrial strategy, that's for other lesser ministries over there across the street, right? Uh, and that's a big mistake. It's a big mistake for technical reasons, because if the economy doesn't grow, of course, you're not going to get the revenues you need. But it's, um, it's uh, a growth, I mean, it's a mistake for more political reasons, because in most countries, the Minister of Finance is the only person who has enough of a 360 view, to and also probably enough power, uh, to make sure that, you know, this thing changes here and that, you know, import restriction is lifted there and that, you know, road or port is built uh, in that province so that, in fact, we take off. So I would put, again, industrial policy, growth strategy, pick your favorite phrase, at the very center of the remit of, um, of finance ministries. And we, we need to shed some, some of the old prejudices that, you know, we're serious people, we don't do that kind of thing. That's complete nonsense. Now you ask, you know, how do they keep abreast of technological developments? That's a very good question. I'm not sure I have a very good answer, except to say, um, when technological change is so, 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 so fast, you need an ongoing dialogue with the private sector because they are the ones who know. Um, 
And the interesting question is, how do you make that dialogue ongoing and institutional, as opposed to the minister just inviting someone for lunch, whenever he or she has a free spot on, on the diary? Um, there are countries, for instance, Peru had a very uh, interesting experience in which they instituted, you know, what they call sectoral working groups or tables in, in Spanish, uh, in which, you know, you, you'd meet with uh, the export sector in minerals or the export sector in fishing or the export sector in fruit, uh, and you'd hear from them, how is the technology changing, what this meant for the kinds of public goods that they needed. Uh, and what this meant also for the kinds of money they were willing to put on the table. And Peru did it in a way that I thought was very clever. They set the rules of the game of those conversations, which happened, you know, at least four times a year. Uh, and, and there were rooms of engagement beforehand. Room uh, uh, engagement number one, asking for tax breaks was not allowed. So if you've come to this meeting to ask for a tax break, I'm walking out. Um, but you can tell me that, in fact, you need a particular kind of human capital that is not being produced in this country because no technical institute is training that particular kind of mining technician. And you can say, could the government, in fact, come up with a program to train that kind of technician? That's cool. Okay. And part of the conversation was that the private sector should also tell the government, look, as I look ahead five years, these are going to be technological changes. These are going to be the things that we will be needing. These are the risks because we could become obsolete here or this product would, you know, nobody will want it five years from now. Or unless we make a change in the way we produce this, we will not get into the EU or the US because of this new legislation. Most government bureaucrats, myself included, you have no time to think about that. You have no idea. You're running from meeting to meeting. There's always some crisis, you know. Uh, and therefore, it is very key to have institutional, regular channels to have that conversation and to make sure they don't ask you for a tax break. Um, Great. I think what has been called uh, in the East Asian context embedded autonomy of the, the bureaucracy. I thought that Marx said that in the 18th Brumaire. Uh, um, that's where the, where the phrase comes from, I believe. Great. Andreas, thank you. That was fantastic. Um, I'm sure there's going to be many questions and I invite the online audience as well. So please, who would like to uh, go first? Yeah, I have um, one here and one behind and three and well, four, Andrew, and then we'll come back to you in the next round. Okay. Thank you very much. This was a very fascinating <coughs> conversation. My name is Chisum. I work with the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. Um, I just have two questions related to, um, the first was related to what you mentioned around, you know, um, for countries to grow, they need to sell what the world needs. Um, and I'm curious about, given what's happening in terms of globalization, um, the geopolitics, and the increasing focus on regionalization and regional integration, do you see that as a viable option? Um, so it's not necessarily selling what the world needs, but selling what maybe what your region needs. Um, the second question is um, around what you said about climate and technology and energy, um, and you know the example you gave about Chile possibly um, housing companies if uh, technology doesn't evolve to allow exportation of energy. Do you think that that doesn't just create another kind of extractive industry in developing countries? Just your thoughts about that. 
I promise I will be brief. Okay, okay. sure. Um, because those are fascinating questions, and I, 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 I want to make sure that I, I, I get a chance to answer. On my second week as a finance minister in Chile, a delegation of business people came in, and one of them uh, pulled out a piece of paper and read what I thought was an extraordinary, eloquent plea for greater trade integration with our neighboring countries. And as he was speaking, I thought to myself, that's so peculiar prose. Why is this guy speaking in this, you know, very formal, flowery language to me? But, you know, he was completely right. And when he finished, he said, that speech is from General San Martin from Argentina. It was delivered in 1821. Point being, 1821, people were saying, this is the moment for regional integration. 1821 was, you know, 202 years ago. Uh, it hasn't happened. So I am a big fan for regional integration in the same way that I am a very big fan for the thought that I will, in fact, not eat that pie at the end of the meal. I worked very hard not to eat that piece of pie, but if I had to put, if I had to bet on myself, I would bet against myself, right? Because I know that it's pretty likely I'm going to eat the piece of pie. Regional integration is, you know, the thing that we always talk about, that we always wish we did, that was, you know, wonderful and worthwhile and whatever. But I think that it is rash, not to say outright irresponsible, to put all of your growth eggs on that particular basket because the politics is very very hard um the infrastructure and in, you know within south america or within africa is not uh what's what's the british phrase fit for purpose uh, uh um and um you know i spent more time as a minister trying to get you know our lorries across the border and doing and, you know, these are between Argentina and Chile, these are two fairly rich countries. I mean, we're, you know, upper middle income, according to the World Bank. Still, you know, the infrastructure is lousy and whenever it snows, you know, the border is closed. So, look, it's great, but uh, let us not rely on that alone. And I would say one more thing. Increasingly, the uh, regional trade is going to be not only in goods, but in services. Um, and that's wonderful, but it's even more difficult. Right, because you get into the legal morass of how do you certify an accountant, you know, in one country who got trained in a different accountant, uh, in a different country, etc. So it's really, 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 really hard. Uh, and so we still need to sell things to other people, whether the other people are next door or across the ocean. I frankly don't care, as long as they're going to buy something that I can produce. Um, it is hard enough as it is. I wouldn't put more constraints on the problem. Um, are we going to produce another extractive industry? I don't know, um, but I do know two things. The world is going to need clean energy, and we could produce as much clean energy as we can in those places that can produce it. And some of those places happen to be represented in this room. Um, so as citizens of planet Earth, we would be crazy not to take advantage of that opportunity. But the next question is, if um, Zambia or Chile or Bangladesh can produce a lot of clean energy. Very soon they're going to produce more clean energy than, than they can consume at home. So what do we do with it? If we can export it, we export it. But if the technology is not available for exporting, what do we do? Do we not produce it? Do we pass up on the opportunity of bottling the sun? So, no, second best, or maybe first best, I don't know, is you say, look, 
you have that big factory in Dusseldorf. Well, you're using coal or nuclear. Uh, well, in Germany, they're trying to get rid of nuclear, but it's not working very well. Um, look, I have nice sunny energy here. Bring that factory, produce that here. So it's not extractivism, it's, it's industry. I mean, you know, for so many years, we've, we, you know, we've had the pipe dream. How do we industrialize developing countries? And truth is, aside from East Asia, we haven't. Mexico, a little bit. So could we do that now simply because we happen to have the clean energy that you cannot get in Germany, you cannot get in Chicago? Maybe. Does that make sense? Yeah. I think the next one was just behind you. Uh, thanks, Andre. Uh, David Nabena from the Nigeria Governor's Forum. I think you also tried to answer that question uh, earlier. And if we look at, um, for example, cement factory being close to a limestone or iron uh, steel industry close to um, iron ore fields, do you do you see the current search for clean energy leading to um, clean energy localization? And do you think con um, countries are aware of that right now? Um, when we look at um, climate targets, regulations, protectionism, uh, do you think that's also informing uh, business decisions, uh, where to invest, where to move factories? And do you think that's really uh, taking account today as we have some of these conversations? I'll be, I'll be telegraphic because I maybe I have answered already, but maybe not. Um, <clears throat> I think this is not at the center of the conversation yet because of the big technological uncertainty that I mentioned earlier. Uh, the, the world could be look very different if in fact the, the clean energy is easily exportable or it is not. Um, if it turns out not to be, then I think businesses will be thinking about this very clearly. And we need to make sure that governments are also thinking about it. And we also, to go back to your question, we need to be thinking that the right businesses, which are clean, uh, and and you know and respect the environment and respect labor rights and everything else come settled in our country um you know one does not have to be a chicago boy and i'm certainly not to understand that typically business people move more quickly than uh, government people do right incentives are different so believe me you know companies will will see this coming and will be knocking on your door saying hey can i can i produce this here so the question that i would ask is you know Will countries be ready in terms of having the infrastructure and, and, and the permitting and all of that that allows that to happen with sufficient speed? Uh, thank you, Andres, for a wonderful um, discussion so far. Um, I'm going to add my country, Ireland, to the list of East Asian uh, countries and maybe Mexico. Exactly, yeah. Um, let's. <laughs> we shall say, we shall say. Um, <clears throat> and um, the Ministry of Finance in Ireland actually did play quite a big role in, in industrial policy um, starting in the 50s, although we did not really get the benefits of it until later on. But um, and a lot of that was by the Permanent Secretary of the Ministry of Finance, um, a man by the name of T.K. Whitaker. Um, and what he seemed to be very good at was consensus building. And I wanted to ask, what, is that something that a finance minister needs to do um, and be better at, and, and also kind of the head officials in finance ministries? I have a lecture that I have in a PowerPoint somewhere in which I show, you know, the typical pie charts. Um, 
export composition of many developing countries. Today they look exactly the same that they looked 10 years ago, 20 years ago, 30 years before. And then I say, look at Ireland. It's amazing, right? I mean, you know, Ireland 35 years ago produced mostly sheep, uh, uh, you know, uh, 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 you know, different kinds of sheep related products, right? You know, nice jumpers and, you know, you know, uh, 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 but they, they all went back to sheep, right? Uh, you know, Ireland today is a technological powerhouse and it happened over a generation. Uh, so it can be done. Um, and uh, what you've just told me something that I did not know. I did not know that, that the finance ministry had been pivotal in, in those discussions. I think there, there are two reasons why the finance ministry can and should be. The first one is that it is the only ministry, and I'm going to be really boring and technocratic here, that internalizes all the externalities. It's the only one that sees the whole picture, right? Because if you are the agriculture minister, well, your business is sheep, right? Uh, 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 or butter or wheat or whatever it might be, right? Uh, whereas the finance minister and the prime minister, of course, but the finance minister on a daily basis is the only person who, in fact, can, um, can, can look at the whole picture. And the second reason why it's so important is that, you know, it is the only ministry whose invitation you never refuse, right? Uh, there are many ministries who say, we're going to have a round table in this, and you go, oh, my God, you know, you know, you pick the number 17 person in the ministry, you ship them off to that particular round table, right? But when the finance minister has a round table, people show up, right? Because who's got the cash? The finance minister, right? So if you want to shift development strategy and industrial policy from, you know, uh, the basement to the center of the ground floor, it, that conversation has to be convened by the finance minister. How much consensus can you build? Um, you know, the kind of consensus where you have some carrots and you have some sticks, right? Um, and of course, you know, you can have some carrots in, in the way of a little cash here and there for subsidies and, and support. But you also need some sticks. My, my, my colleague and friend, Danny Roderick, has a beautiful paper on why industrial policy was successful in Taiwan and Korea and why it was unsuccessful in, in places like Brazil and Mexico. And his political economy explanation is a better economy. That is to say, you need a government that is strong enough to create a subsidy, but it is also strong enough to remove the subsidy. Um, because if you don't say credibly, after five years, guys, we're taking away the money, well, firms will not adjust. And on year four and a half, they will say, oh, we haven't adjusted, so give us the money again. And that is a game in which the subsidy is always in place and the adjustment never takes place. So you need credibility. And again, the finance minister is probably the one that, you know, has a stick that is large enough. So it has the carrots, but also has the sticks. Of course, the finance minister, you know, is a boss. That's, you know, the head of government, whether a president or a prime minister. So it's very, 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 very key that this is also viewed as a political priority. Um, and in some countries it is, and in some countries it isn't. And you can tell by the results which is which. There was a... Marco, is that... Are you just twitching or... Is that Andrew? Yeah. And then Luke, and then... There's three... Okay, well... Lawrence has her hand up at the back. Yeah, yeah, and we'll... Um, so let's take these two. And then we'll go to the, to the cluster at the back there. Um, good afternoon, uh, Andreas. I, I'm also Andrew, Andrew Lawson. Uh, I work with Fiscus. And um, I've been asked uh, to help a particular country, which I shouldn't name, to think through uh, the usefulness or otherwise of introducing fiscal rules. And um, I should say that this particular country doesn't have a reputation for good fiscal management. And in reading, <laughs> yes. And in reading, you know, most of the literature on fiscal rules, 
what comes across, and I'm sure many people in this room already know this, in many cases they don't work. And we could maybe simplify the literature by saying that fiscal rules work where a lot of the base conditions for good macroeconomic management are already in place. Or paraphrasing that, you could say they work in countries that probably didn't need them in the first place. Um, that's an, you know, an exaggeration. But Chile, of course, has, has a strong reputation for fiscal discipline, good management. So I suppose my question is, do you think that Chile could have survived without fiscal rules? And what was the sort of extra that you got from having a, a constitutionally defined or legally defined uh, framework of fiscal rules? I would try to be brief to go to the kind of question where I could pontificate for the next 45 minutes, and I shall not do so. Um, when you say they don't work, I imagine what you mean is that uh, they're enacted but not respected. Yes. And of course, I will be. I'm. I was a politician for part of my life, so I will. I'm very ready to admit that politicians say things that don't quite happen later, and that's a big problem. But it's a big problem for all kinds of rules. So I mean, there are some countries where announcements are never followed up. And those countries are going to have a difficult time, you know, moving ahead in the world. So yes, there is some subset of countries that, you know, where this is never going to work because nothing is going to work. Um, but there is a subset of countries where policies have been bad, and a fiscal rule can make the policies better. And I, uh, and let me use some some flavor of why that is so. A fiscal policy. And I've written some papers with equations that make this point, but I shall skip the equation. The fiscal policy is the outcome of some kind of political and strategic interaction across a bunch of players. The head of state, the minister of finance, the spending ministries, uh, the constituencies that demand different goodies in some countries that are federal, the governors or the provinces or the states, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and this game can be structured in different ways. And there are some ways that are conducive to a good outcome, and there are some ways that are conducive to a bad outcome. Why did I find that it helped? What we did in Chile was this. We created a system which uh, forced the government every year to have an estimate of its long-term spending capacity. And you could deviate slightly from that long-term income, but not much. And from a political point of view, what this meant is that on the 30th, 30th of September of every year, um, I would have to give a speech in which I would say, blah, 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 blah. Real spending growth for the next 12 months cannot exceed X. And that was the, the one moment in the year when everybody tuned to what I had to say, because, you know, and that X could be 2% in some years or 12% in some years. Um, you could say, well, who cares? You know, if the politicians want to throw that ceiling out the window, they can. But what happened is this, it changed the conversation. It changed the conversation because right after, on October 1st, I would begin to do my rounds with the spending ministers. And the defense minister, a very powerful woman, would come into my office and demand more money. And I, I learned the routine. I would say, you know, colleague, I am with you. I, I think that, in fact, we you know we need more money. I didn't think so, but you know, politicians can lie too. Uh, um, uh, and therefore, I invite you to tell me whose budget I should cut, because the president is on record as having said that spending will not grow more than 2.5% this year. 
So, you know, you work for the president, I work for the president, the president is on record as having adopted that. So you want more money? And I, sometimes I would sort of lean forward and conspiratorially say, let's go after this other ministry, right? And I could see her you know, eyes sparkle, right? Um, but, you know, in the language of game theory, you change the rules to change the equilibrium, right? Um, yes, you know, the president could have thrown the thing out the door and we could have violated the legal constraint and we could have actually created a row with the constitutional court. I mean, yes, it could have happened, but the political costs of going that route were gigantic. So basically what ended up happening is that, you know, the spending ministers, they kind of knew that at some point they would have the day in the sun. For instance, you know, at some point, you know, the president made education a big priority. And so, you know, education, the ceiling was 3% education got nine. And that meant that that year agriculture got zero. Okay. Um, and defense got minus two. Okay. Um, so will it work in all circumstances at all times? No, but you know, as a, as a lover of game theory, I do know that if you change the rules and you change the incentives, you change the outcome. And what a rule is, does is exactly that. It just changes the way the interaction takes place and takes you closer to a better outcome. Thank you, Lucero from the IMF. So you talked about the need for developing countries to diversify, develop export strategies, sell beef to Europe. So how would you advise authorities on the sector specifically to, to, to promote and to support? I'm the mission chief for Botswana, the IMF, and Botswana is the second diamond producer in the world. 90% of their exports are on diamond, and their uh, industrial policy is very broad. Uh, I would even say diluted. And so one of the challenges that we face is when we advise them is they ask us which sector should we promote. And uh, so what would be your conceptual framework to approach this question? I understand that it's a very complex question, but how would you look at that? Which criteria would you uh, tell them to look at or thank you? to do is not to ask the IMF. The IMF is in charge of macro, not of micro. <laughs> you know, you should, not, you should not be answering that question. You know, uh, you should say in a very British way that is beyond my remit, sir. Uh, uh, I will not be answering that question. I mean that, actually. I'm saying it in a somewhat flippant one, but I do, I do mean it because I think mission creep is a big issue. And I love the fund. I've worked at the fund. Uh, uh, I advise the fund and I have many friends at the fund, but the fund should not be in that business. So that's my, you know, that's my, uh, um, now what's the conceptual framework? Yeah, again, many smart people, you know, Charles um, Sobel at Columbia, for instance, have written about this quite thoughtfully. First, you need institutions because these cannot be seat of the pants uh, decisions that are made by some minister at midnight. Secondly, you need institutions that are one degree removed from the political process so that their planning horizon is not the election cycle every four years. This is a tricky thing, right? Because politicians hate to have state institutions that are not accountable to them in the political cycle. So it is hard to set them up, but you can. You know, we have independent central banks. We need to have something like an independent industrial strategy agency, which is politically accountable, but not every four years, maybe every 10 years, and maybe with a board with overlapping terms so that, you know, you change one person or two people every you know, four years, but you don't change a whole board every four years, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and thirdly, um, you know, there are different ways of thinking about this. The minimum 
um, I would uh, engage in what I would call horizontal interventions, that is to say, thinking of what public inputs are necessary across a broad range of activities. Obvious thing, for instance, which I struggled with when I was a minister in Chile is we don't teach English in, uh, well enough. And pretty much for anything that involves exports, you're going to need people who speak English. My country lost a massive, 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 massive investment from a big tech firm from the United States. They came, you know, they liked the place, the IT was good, the country was safe. We also happened to be on the same time zone as the Eastern Seaboard of the United States. Everything was great. And, you know, we have pretty good engineering faculties. The programmers were well trained. Problem was, programmers didn't speak English. And they came this close to putting down several billion dollars. And in the end, we lost it uh, because they just couldn't find enough people. So you get my point. There are some, you know, horizontal kinds of skills that need to be promoted. And English or mathematics uh, are the most obvious ones, but not the only ones. And then I would not be shy at taking a stab at saying, you know, I, I, I do not know whether, you know, in the future, this kind of glass or a different kind of glass will be in high demand. But I think we can say something about whether the glass sector or not has told some promise in our country. Um, and we can make bets. And again, to go back to in better autonomy, we can make bets which can be rescinded if the bet turns out to be the wrong one. And this is why it's so important to have states that are strong, because it takes a strong state to make a bet, but it takes an even stronger state to say, oh my God, we made a mistake after five years, we're out of there. Uh, can it be done? Yes. Have countries done it? Yes. Is it easy? No, it's very hard, but I think it can be done. So that's, you know, I, my answer will be mostly institutional. You need to set up a way for thinking about this, because I could give you an answer, you know, after two beers, but who the hell, you know, who, who knows whether that's a good answer or not. You need a system for coming up uh, 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 with those answers. At the World Bank, not the IMF. Um, <laughs> Mm. Oh, no, no, the fun, no, the, oh, the fun is much more fun. Don't go to the World Bank. Um, I think we had a question from Florence and some others at the back there. At the back over there. Um, thank you very much. Allow me to stand because the gentleman in front of me is far taller than me. So when I sit, I won't be able to see you. Uh, very interesting discussion. My only concern is the ongoing debate in Africa. I'm Kutesa, and uh, I'm from Uganda, a developing country in Africa. The ongoing debate is the role of Ministry of Finance and the national planning authorities or commissions or the ministries of planning and economic development. I've listened to you talking about that the ministries of finance should be very strong. I entirely agree with you. In Uganda, I've been involved in what we call mergers and divorce on two occasions. What would Ministry of Finance and Planning? Personally, I started in Ministry of Planning. Then there was a merger with Ministry of Finance. The marriage, I think, lasted for about three months, and then we were split two, no, two years, sorry. Then two years later, we were merged. When we were merged, Ministry of Planning and Finance, 
majority of the stakeholders argued that finance is limited to only public resources. They don't do analytical work, no strategic thinking. They've got a short, medium-term perspective of the development needs. And hence, we need to have National Planning Commission. This is similar to most of the developing countries. So what would you advise our countries on how to strengthen Ministry of Finance? Or how to change the planning process being conducted by all these national planning commissions and authorities, which do not provide the strategic thinking you are talking about? Thank you very much. Really very good question. Uh, um, marriage counseling has never been my thing, so I'm, I'm, I'm trying to think exactly I, how I should, I should answer. Um, I come from a country with a very, very high divorce rate, so uh, um, I'm not sure there's one blueprint that I would want to you know, sell everywhere, but I think there are two principles that I am comfortable advocating. The first one is that the remit of the Ministry of Finance should be broad enough to include growth and the things that need to be done to grow. The Ministry of Finance should not be an accounting unit of the state that makes sure that all you do is you pay your bills. Right? Um, you know, for that you don't need a ministry and certainly not one of finance. Um, and in some sense, de facto, that is what happens because the Minister of Finance in the end, if you, you know, when, when I became the Minister in Chile, my predecessor who was a very clever man, took me aside and he said, look, the, you think that you will be evaluated by how large the fiscal deficit was. And he said, nobody will remember. The only thing that they will remember was whether the country grew or did not grow and whether it created jobs or didn't create jobs during your tenure. So in some sense, you know, the incentives of the Minister of Finance are well aligned because he or she understands that uh, if the country doesn't grow and if jobs are not created, you know, history will not be kind. Um, now, not everything can be done at the Ministry of Finance to some extent because of, you know, scope, you know, economies of scope are limited, so you don't want to put everything under one roof. Secondly, politics. Every other minister hates the Minister of Finance, and therefore they will be reluctant to give that ministry so much power. But thirdly, I'm going to go back to my uh, my answer of 30 seconds ago. Rather than marrying the Planning Commission with the Finance Ministry, what I would do is I would turn the Planning Commission into the Planning Agency, uh, remove the status of minister from the head of the Planning Commission, and make it into a semi-decentralized, semi-autonomous agency more akin to an independent central bank. So these are not two ministers who need to be married because they're in competition. One is a minister and one is an advisory body. And, you know, we may want to think about whether that advice is binding, not binding, which bits of it are binding. If the Ministry of Finance decides not to listen to the agency, well, does he or she have to write a letter to Parliament explaining why, how come we're not doing what, you know, you can imagine softer or harder ways of, you know, designing the interaction between the two. But I would insist that the planning agency should not be a ministry in the sense that a minister is a political appointee accountable to the political process. Don't take me wrong, I'm, I, I'm not saying that we do without accountability, 
All I'm saying is that we need a different kind of accountability. You know, we do not appoint Supreme Court justices uh, uh, on the basis of their popularity. You know, we want them to be as independent as possible. We don't want you know, judges to be looking at polls before they decide whether someone is guilty or innocent. By the same token, we do not want planning or strategy authorities to be looking at polls to decide whether we put the plant in this province or in that province, right? So this is not a political decision. It is a technical decision which ought to be political accountable, politically accountable, but only over very long cycles. So it's not marriage, it's not divorce, it's relocation. Um, uh, I hope that helps. Thank you. Yeah, 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 sure, something like that, sure. I, I don't know all the all the acronyms, but but Finland has something like this, New Zealand has something like this, Peru has something like this. In very different ways, but you know you have such 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 beasts. Now we need to wrap up, but I'm aware there's a few people who've had their hands up for a while. So what we're going to do is take the three the three hands that I'd seen and um, take them all together, and then you can answer that and provide any closing remarks that you want to. So there were two right at the back. I think Martin and Wangari, maybe, who had their hands up before. Hi, uh, Martin Kessler from the Finance from the European Lab. A question on, on um, the green growth that you're saying, how the kind of high energy, in, which is in comparative advantage in developing countries. So how do you finance that? Um, right now, the markets are mostly closed for large investments in developing countries. Is there, you know, you were taking on financial engineering, what kind of things could, could enact this, this green growth? Is there another question at the back there or not? No, okay, we'll just take two and, and one question, one question here as well. And apologies to those of you who didn't get a chance. The front row has had his hand up here for a while. Oh, has he? Okay, sorry, I hadn't seen. Oh, there is one. Sorry, yeah. Yeah, we'll take that one. Well, that one there and then this one, and then we'll have to close. So we work with African countries on their industrial policy. So all what you mentioned is music to my ears. My question is a bit about the technological forecast or technological planning. In the case of many African countries, the frontier technology is so far away and their private sector does not have those capabilities. And in many cases, the private sector is against more competition. So how do you, would you advise African countries to build that technological forecasting capabilities outside of the public-private dialogue uh, with sometimes a non-competitive private sector. Hi, my name is Wangari. Uh, um, my question is around, um, recently President Ruto from Kenya, from where I'm from, uh, talked about thinking about a new global financing architecture and he proposed a global tax to support um, uh, this, the idea around um, financing uh, developing countries, especially from this kind of global tax, uh, new tax framework. Could you give me, uh, could you provide your thoughts around that uh, and see is this a viable um, idea? Is this, we've talked even yesterday about you know, we need to rethink kind of these Bretton Woods institutions and how, um, uh, you know, developing countries access finance. Uh, what did you, what do you think about what President Ruto's proposition was? So we've got three questions, one on financing investments, a related one on these ideas of a global shipping tax or something to help finance that, and a question on how do you get to the technological frontier in Africa? Well, let me talk about the two from this end of the room first, and then I'll, I'll come to you. Um, I do not know the detail of the proposals by your president, so I would not want to pass judgment on them, but, but I do want to say two things that are closely related. Um, uh, 
do we need a different system uh, for catalyzing capital flows to developing and emerging markets? Yes, we do. Okay. Uh, and yes, we do in uh, two different kinds of times. We need it in tranquil times for long-term investment, and we also need it in, in crisis times for emergency balance of payment support. Um, I'm a macro guy, so short term is my thing. I thought capital flows to developing countries during COVID were shameful, embarrassing. You know, the IMF, sorry, IMF uh, colleague, uh, uh, you know, the IMF managing director made a speech in which he said that um, the developing countries and the emerging nations would need about two trillion. Uh, the fund announced that the fund could lend about half of that, that is to say one trillion. COVID additional related lending by the fund, depending on how you measure it, was either 80 or 150. Uh, uh, so it was less than 10% of what the fund said the world needed. And it was less than a fifth of what the fund said that it could lend. Um, it's a long debate as to why that happened. Is it demand? Is it supply? You know, are the facilities well designed? Is it not? Is it the countries? You know, I have no idea, but, the, but that outcome is not a good outcome, right? So we need to do things differently. And we knew we need to do things differently. And this takes me to the first question. So we have investment opportunities. Those investment opportunities have potentially high return. They're in everybody's interest. This is not just a local interest because they could contribute to greener growth and more growth. Uh, and to So I want to qualify what you said slightly. There is one of the surprises to me as a macroeconomist has been the degree to which middle-income countries have retained market access. So I wouldn't write the sort of, you know, uh, uh, capital market entirely off. You know, uh, I have predicted 55 times that Brazil will have a debt crisis and that it'll be, you know, the markets won't lend to Brazil anymore. It doesn't seem to happen. I have no idea why. God is Brazilian or something. Uh, 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 um, um, so, you know, capital markets have been more resilient and more willing to tolerate uh, large debt by South Africa. Turkey, uh, uh, Brazil, and a number of other countries, right? Sorry about the rugby thing. Uh, 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 he's from South Africa. Uh, uh, um, um, but the subset of countries with unfair market access, of course, is tiny, right? Uh, um, you know, maybe a dozen countries or maybe 20 countries at most. So we need mechanisms for providing public guarantees and lowering the risk of that investment. And the, you know, the financial engineering of that is, is, is very simple, right? I mean, you know, most undergraduates with two terms in finance could design it. What is lacking is basically the political will to put the balance sheet of the large multilaterals and indirectly the balance sheet of the rich countries of the world behind that effort. If I put on my heart as a politician, I know that it's hard. You know, I would not like to be, you know, be on campaign explaining to my voters in Europe or the US that in fact we are going to provide guarantees for, you know, investments in country X and most voters, of course, have no idea what country X is. So I'm perfectly aware of how hard it is. But I think we can also in if I put on my hat as a financial engineer, you can do it in ways such that the actual deployment of capital is very small, right? The contingent guarantees, you know, and then there are ways of doing it so that you know, President Biden does not have to go to US Congress and ask for 10 trillion, right? Uh, because that, that's not going to happen. Um, uh, 
uh, but it's not happening. I mean, the reality is to go back to my bold and somewhat unfair statement, but not entirely untrue statement at the at the outset today. You know, the committees uh, issue reports that then go to commissions, and the commissions issue reports that then go to committees. Uh, but uh, not much is happening, and you know. Having experienced temperatures of, you know, 47 degrees on the European continent this past summer, we should all be aware that uh, this is this is not fun and games. Um, but we're very much asleep asleep at the at the wheel. To your question, um, I did not mean to suggest that every developing country should be going after the latest technology in every sector. Uh, you know, I'm I'm an economist, not engineering, so I don't have this obsession with you know the latest trendy technology. But what I did mean to say is that if there are going to be new opportunities in the export of clean, green energy, that will not be under current technologies. Okay? Because taking um, the sun from the Atacama Desert in northern Chile and shipping it to central Germany today is very expensive and very dangerous. So under current technologies, that is not going to happen. Will there be technologies in two years time or five years time which will enable that? Some engineers say yes, some engineers say I'm not so sure. It is in that very limited domain where every country in this room should be asking what is available out there so that my wind or my sun or my waves or my water can be bottled and sent away. Uh, and people who know about this tell me that that is a film whose crucial moment is, you know, about to come on screen. I mean, we will know the answer to that question just in the next few months or years. And if the answer is it can be done, the opportunities are gigantic. I mean, if, you know, I have a friend of mine who wants to run for president of Chile, and I keep telling him, this is what you need to do. You're going to have a, you know, a, a speech of national renewal on the basis of being the cleanest and greenest country on earth. But for that to be credible, we need technologies that are not quite there yet. Andres, thank you very much. If we can please uh, give a round of applause. That was incredibly wide ranging, so I'm not going to attempt to sum it up. Um, but if I can just ask uh, everybody in the room to be back in here um, just in 10 minutes, so just a quick break, uh, um, five past two, so that we can get the next session underway as well. Thank you. And thank you, Andres.